never studied with the Baptists that could explain that. Their, their preachers can get up there and go through it. But I'm saying that their reasoning is of such a nature that the average person sitting out there listening to them in the pulpit cannot sit down and explain to you uh, these various things. Another thing, if that applies like they're applying it, then you're going to have the fulfillment of it take place when there are no inspired people around to show the interpretation of it. In other words, that I'm saying when all these things happen throughout the Bible, there were always inspired people to, like Jesus quotes Daniel and the apostles using all, to come along and explain, the Hebrew writer doing to the Old to explain it and to interpret it. So you're going to have this several thousand years after the last inspired person with no, with, with the best we can do is is Pat Robertson to come along and explain it to us. You know, well, uh, you know, Pat Robertson, if the Holy Spirit was telling him he was going to become president, and then I, I think he might be wrong on a few other things. But, uh, but I mean, that's the best we've got is the likes of Pat Robertson. But the thing of it is, when they get to dealing with all these events, these people that supposedly understand it so well, they argue and fuss with themselves, you know, as to what's actually happening. The danger of it, I think the, the problem, I have a lot of problems with it. One is I think they make the Bible look bad because they're always saying that and the, the unbelievers, I think, are having a field day they're listening to them. Find it to the present political turmoil that are going on. Whatever turmoil, it, it was applied to Hitler. It was applied back to the, in the Protestant movement. It was applied to the Pope, you know. And when we come on down, though, whatever the turmoil situation is, uh, just like this recent thing, man, they had a field day with that because uh, with Saddam, you know, actually coming from old Babylon, you know, that they had a real field day with that. <coughs> when was that that uh, interpretation first conceived? Pre-millennialism. Uh, there are different Roman forms of it. The uh, the most, the the belief that many have now, uh, that uh, the end time will begin when Christ comes back, and then you have the man of sin, etc. Actually, was first espoused by historically by a Catholic monk who's trying to uh, deal with Protestants applying all that to the Pope in Rome, and so he his end time. Uh, starts near the on down at the. In other words, he gets that uh, that last period of time, whenever the Messiah comes back, and then we have you know these various things now. But it's been refined so many times down through the years, and so many times added unto it. In other words, all premillennialists don't give the, forth the same information. You know, they they're all they're all in agreement that Christ is coming back and he's going to reign on this earth. You know, but. The, the events that build up to it and everything, there's a lot of differences among them, you know, concerning the events themselves. For years they preached that Russia was this great power from the north and all, and we was going to have our Gog and Magog thing and all. And after all the talk and all the sermons and all the writing, here, here the Soviet Union just falls apart on them, and we don't have that big rough barrel there any longer. But before that, they did the same thing with Hitler. Well, is, is there people in the Church of Christ that push part of the Revelation and 
other things into the future too? The second coming? No, really, within the church, uh, uh, you'll only find uh, among the preachers that are, I'm talking about the, the, the I'm not talking about what any individual, but among all the preachers that, that are regarded in any sense, as, as studied and everything, you'll, you'll only find two prevailing views, and that is that uh, 96 applying to Domitian and, and the situation there are before 70 AD and, and applying okay. in that way. But now, those that apply at Domitian, they will come on down to the Christ coming back in you know, the end of the world. Right, that, that, that part of it. Right. I read him correctly. Well, where, where do they, what's the strongest argument for that? That this second coming is going to be still in the future? The uh, fact that sermons have been preached on it all their life about Jesus coming back on the clouds. And it, it, and the, it all goes back. We, we went through, after the, after the King James Bible took over in the English world, when the Restoration Movement uh, got its start in this country, there was only one Bible for those people, and that's King James. Most of those people were not outstanding scholars. Okay, and everybody has King James Bible. So in the King James Bible, the consummation of the age is translated the end of the world. And so people just simply read that with that programmed in their mind. So by the time they get to Revelation, they've already, they're thinking of Matthew 24 is the end of the world. And see, what they would do, they would say, up until verse 32 or 34, he's speaking of Jerusalem, then it's the end of the world, of that day and time, you know. And then over here where he's speaking of Jerusalem, when he talks about the stars falling and all, well, that, but then you got him in a position of talking about this verse is the end of the world, this is Jerusalem, this is the end of the world, this is Jerusalem, you know. And then it's all based on that mistranslation anyway at the end of the world. Well, then by the time you get to Revelation, where it says that soon, the way they handle that is one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. Well, um, before the King James Bible, was there any people that believed these things were talking about something that still happened way out? Well, the see, the King James translators had to, that's the reason that's they translate they that at the end of the world. In other words, what they were really doing, like people who criticize some of the newer translations by saying there's interpretation and all of this kind of stuff, what you have there is, an, it says the consummation of the age. And the King James translators themselves believe in the end of the world, that he's going to come back. And so what they thought they were doing is making this easier, because you might miss it. Right. You, know, you, you, you might think it meant something else. And so, and by the way, most of the time when there is a mistranslation, it come about because of that very reason that translators having a particular understanding and actually trying to help you understand that. In other words, the intention was good. Like the capital S and the small s of the Holy Spirit. Right, same thing. That uh, you really, that's exactly right. By putting that capital there, you immediately think of, you know, the God, God himself and in reality, uh, that is an arbitrary decision made on their particular understanding. And so they, they do it in, in that way. Can you think of another example of the New Testament that <coughs> shows that same kind of thing where they translated something wrong because of misunderstanding, but it's unrelated to the second coming? Okay. Hell. 
they they knew that they had uh, Tartarus, Gehenna, and Hades, and they knew the meaning of all three words, and they took this one word hell, and and rendered it, uh, and so that uh, and and allowed uh, you know an interpretation than to become a doctrine when in reality there is no such thing as a Bible doctrine of hell. There's a Bible doctrine of Hades, a Bible doctrine of Gehenna, a Bible doctrine of Tartarus, and then there are times when Gehenna in a figurative sense is used, you know what I'm saying? But uh, that that would be an example of example? baptism. Uh, okay, another one, baptism. The all of the, like, again, for the people in the Church of Christ and others that are so set on the King James because it contains no interpretation or anything like that, uh, every last one of those people were members of the Church of England. And the Church of England does not immerse. It sprinkles. And it goes back to 1511 at the Council of Ravenna, the Roman Catholic Church. So here they come to the Greek text, and baptizo is just simply a Greek word for immersion. That's all the world it means. That's it, it, you know, it's not what does baptism. Baptism is just a word that means immersion. They should have rendered that repent and be immersed for the remission of your sins. You know, he that believeth and he's immersed. You know, that that should have been the rendering. Well, what do you do? There's the you you are already sprinkling or pouring, and not immersing, but you want to be true to the text. So what they did, they transliterated that Greek word baptism, which really has no meaning in the English language. And so, but yet they, they see the reason, the purpose behind the King James really, King James was disturbed about all the division within Christendom and all the argument and the fussing because of these different translations, that it, uh, Tyndall's translation, uh, and, and et cetera, that had been made. And so he's really wanting unity. And so how are you going to bring this about? So what they do is they just transliterate that word and, and that settles the matter. Well, then that allows people to interpret it the way they want to. But the way that uh, those of us that teach immersion, we've just simply always pointed out the Greek word is immersion. And then we look at the context and say, hey, look at it. It talks about a burial and a planning, etc. Et you know. But that's an example where their interpretation calls that. Kind of off on the side from what we're talking about. But my supervisor, he's Presbyterian, and he said that he had seen a drawing or something they found, some kind of archaeological find that they that dated way back to real close to the first century, where it was a drawing of somebody standing in water, like up to their knees or something, and a pouring water over them. And that was, you know, the picture of baptism that they had. And he said, you know, the Jordan River wouldn't have been deep enough to have baptized. Oh, they, they've shooed that, and that's not so... That, there's, there's really no scholar that even believes that. Or anything. This, uh, this magazine here dealing with uh, Jews and Christians in a Roman world, let me see if this is the one. One of these, see, baptism was uh, not originated by John the Baptist. Uh, the Essenes were already immersing people. And, and you could see how that it would perfectly symbolize the cleansing or washing away of your sins and all. Right? Even some pagan groups really were practicing immersion. So John the Baptist there actually picked it up, or, or at least used, what was already being used. It was the perfect picture of the washing away of your sins. And so he used it, and then they, the others just continued. But in the, 
the best way to understand the meaning of any word is to go back to their usage of it at that day and what they understood. And their understanding of it was strictly immersion. All right? And then when you look at the New Testament, when you deal with the explanation of it, it's in terms of a burial and a planning and a resurrection. All right? Then you look at what it symbolizes. Baptism is a physical act that was designed to symbolize the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and your death, burial, and resurrection. Well, how is that symbolized in sprinkling? And, and so that, uh, that every, in other words, the whole symbolic meaning of the word is destroyed when you do anything other than immerse itself. But it was never understood. Now, in, in within a short time, they began to build baptistries and all, but really it's interesting now that uh, whereas our baptistries are such that you stand in the water up to here and then you let the person over. A number of their baptistries was not near as big out, but they were deeper. And so you just simply step down into the water and immersed and, and, and come up, and it, it, which really is, a, you know, a, a, looks like to me a good idea to just step down however far you need to step till you get under, and then you come, come back up. Uh, which one of those, I mean, you showed, I don't know how many archaeological books, I mean, if one was going by, start out with one, or, I mean, which one would you start with? I'd start out with Joseph Free on the... Is that available for CBD? I haven't seen it in there. See what it is. It's, uh, let me see the dating. I think it's 66, if my memory, but I'm not sure. Do you know anything, you heard anything on the news? This was actually first printed in, uh, 50, and this is a copyrighted, this is the 12th printing, 1973. Okay, so that's why that it's not, but I'm saying this is a conservative scholar and, uh, you know, really handles his information in a, in a good way. But this one is good. Now, this is good also by Jack Lewis, Historical Backgrounds of Bible History. You know, it's, uh, it's very good also. Where'd you but, get them, though, if you can't get them to see it? Oh, I just, uh, that one, uh, the Gospel Advocate would have it. Uh, any of your uh, any of your Christian bookstores can get for you. In other words, they really are not going to stock information that does not sell on a regular basis. They can't have it sitting up on a shelf, but they'll order it for you. Yeah, right there. Okay, I've got another question for you. Because we're going to leave kind of early. We're trying, we're trying to. What do you, what's your belief on the resurrection? Where do you put the resurrection in the family? I, I believe the resurrection is immediately at death. Uh, you, uh, first of all, that uh, there's contradiction in the way in our songs and the way it's preached on both uh, for example in our songs we've got one concerning that the angels bear your soul away we talk about going to be with the Lord and uh, we talk about Hades the place of di disembodied spirits we talk about the rich man and Lazarus and the fact that they were conscious immediately after day death knew their destiny and everything like that we talk about Moses and, uh, and Elijah who appeared in the Transfiguration and talked with Jesus and everything like that. And we've even got songs dealing with it. Then we turn right around and have ourselves in the ground 
and the Lord comes back and we come up out of the ground and rise to meet him in the air. All right, then the question becomes, if we're talking about a literal thing, what is it that's coming out of the ground? In other words, it says, just think of the statement when the Bible deals with it. It says, the spirit returns to God and the body goes back to the dust from which it came. Uh, Jesus says, don't fear them who can destroy the body, but fear him who can destroy both body and soul. And so you have the, the separation there when the Bible deals with it as the body without the spirit is dead. You know, the only way the spirit dies is when it's separated from God. You know, and, that, and then it's dead. Um, well, talking about that past thing about, you know, meeting in the air and all that. All right, I, I believe all of that is figurative language. Uh, dealing, I believe the... All right, in there, I believe the... Uh, I believe that same language is used in the Old Testament when you have judgment on cities and all like that. In other words, I believe that it's you're dealing with the destruction of Jerusalem and the downfall of the Jewish nation and the gathering together of his people and all of that. But uh, I believe it's figurative language. Uh, in Ezekiel 37, when Israel had been carried into captivity and they thought they were totally defeated, in trying to convey to them that they were going to rise up and everything like that, you had this vision of dry bones and the bones all come together and there was sinew on them and meat and muscle, etc. And then the bones, then the grave gave up its dead and then the bones got up and walked. And then what that symbolized was that it was Israel was going to be resurrected and they were going to go back and rebuild their city and things like that. There are places in Isaiah, like the 26th chapter, Speaking of the graves, you know, people coming forth, the dead will come out of their graves. When in reality, again, he's talking about defeated Israel coming back again and all. And so I don't, uh, I believe that refers to it in that sense. And I look, <clears throat> that, look at it from the standpoint that all the information has to be harmonious. Paul said that for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Whether I'm going to stay here and be with you, or to go ahead and depart and be with the Lord. He said, whether I live in the flesh or go ahead and be with the Lord, I'd rather go ahead and be with the Lord, but I'll stay, you know, what good I can do you, therefore I'm convinced I'm going to live in flesh. With Paul, life wasn't really affected. The question was, where is that life going to be? Is my life going to be in the body, or is, am, I, am I going to give up the body and go be with the Lord? But the, the real Paul is, is this person that's dwelling in this temple or this tabernacle. And so death was simply a separation of the spirit to, to go be with the Lord. Uh, we're to be as the Lord or like the Lord. The Lord is a spirit. God is the father of our spirits, not our bodies. Hebrews 12 and verse 9. When Jesus spoke to the Sadducees and argued with them, he said, you don't understand the scriptures and the power of God. Remember the argument they had uh, about, and it was a good argument. I mean, if there is a bodily resurrection, and here's this, this woman or this man that's had several mates that have died and are married again, then which one are they mated to, you know, in this resurrection? Which one's going to look on them as husband or wife? And he said that you, you don't understand the scriptures and the power of God, but he said that, there will be no marrying or giving in marriage, but you will be like the angels in heaven. So the resurrection, he said, is one where there will be no male or female. There will be no sexes. 
and that we will be like the angels are. Well, the angels are defined as spiritual beings uh, who minister to those of us who would inherit salvation, but they are spiritual beings. Well, then Paul said that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And so, that, and, and then the writer says that the body returns to the dust that gave it, the spirit returns to God. Okay, when does the body return? At death, two things happen at the same time. The body goes to the dust, the spirit returns to God. Well, where is God? Well, the, the God was identified by the inspired writers as they identified a place, paradise, as the abode of God, or the third heaven. Uh, the Jew thought of the heaven where the birds are is one, where the stars are is two, and then over and above our cosmos, there was the third heaven, or the abode of God. And, and they thought of the you know, the, they used the, the, the man had the concept of the Hadean world, even without the Jews, the, the spiritual world. It's a Greek term. But the Jews used it to represent, you know, their understanding of, of that term. But uh, you have the spirit departing, and then the body goes back into the ground. But then the question is, when they talk about a resurrection, what is it that is coming out of the ground? If the body has deteriorated and gone back to the dust, and a spirit is not physical in any sense. <clears throat> what is it that's coming in the ground? If it's in the ground, where is it at in the ground? And, uh, and, and then uh, how do we deal with the passages that, that every time we have you know, death that the, the spirit is going to, to be with God? And so I, can't, I can never reconcile in my mind, I mean I'm talking about way back over the years, could never reconcile the fact that your body goes back to the dust, the spirit goes to be with the Lord, you're going into the Hadean realm, uh, uh, there's Abraham and Lazarus and the rich man, uh, there's Moses and Elijah over there, uh, there's the Lord over there, the angels, and the fact that we are going to be as the angels, and yet they still have the Lord coming on a cloud and blowing a trumpet and people coming up out of the ground, all right? But then not only do you have this people coming out of the ground, and I, don't, I still don't know what's coming out of the ground now, because the Spirit is supposedly with God. But when I look at the passages where you've got the Lord riding that cloud, I know that first of all, in the Old Testament, that that was used in a consistent way as figurative language, dealing with God swiftly coming in judgment, like he come riding the clouds to Egypt uh, in uh, Isaiah the 19th chapter and several other places. And when I look at that and, and look at the whole context, I see that the context is the destruction of Jerusalem, when, you know, in, in Matthew 24. And so here, and then when the Thessalonian writer uses it, he, he's giving you exactly the same type of language that you have in Matthew 24. The, the same language. There's just uh, nothing different there. And, and then when you look further into that in Thessalonians, you find that he's speaking of an event that people could be deceived into believing it happened based on a letter. Well, obviously they wouldn't think of the end of the world if you could be deceived in a letter. So it's just, to my mind, when I look at everything, I just can't see anything other than the fact that, you know, your spirit just simply goes, like the thief on the cross, this day thou shalt be with me in paradise, goes in to be with the Lord, and your body goes to dust. I personally don't believe there is going to be any kind of a bodily resurrection in any sense. Okay, well, the strongest passage or the passage that, that a lot of that stuff comes out of is, is in First 
Thessalonians chapter 4. Uh -huh. And so when he, when he says, we believe that Jesus died and rose again, so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Mm -hmm. What does he mean when he says he will bring, they bring with Jesus those that have fallen asleep in him? Okay, first of all, before you interpret it, you, you look at the whole context. And in 1 Thessalonians 1 and 10, he speaks of God's coming wrath. Right? Yeah. Uh, and to wait for his son from heaven, whom Jesus will be raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Okay. Now, let's, so then we begin to ask the question. That's 1 Thessalonians uh, 1. Let me turn back here. 1 and 10. Now we ask, what, what is he talking about? What is this coming wrath? Uh, what is he going to rescue us from? And remember, it's not written in chapters and verses. We divided it over. So let's come on down to chapter 2 and verse 14. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap to their sins the limit. The wrath of God has come on them at last. So he tells you that this wrath of God is coming on the Jews and that they have crucified the Lord and all. All right, now when he talks about how they're being persecuted, hold your place there and flip over to Acts 17 where you have Paul starting the church in Thessalonica. And notice the, the setting in Acts 17. They go into Thessalonica. Paul goes into the synagogue in verse 2. Begins to prove that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Verse 5, the Jews were jealous. And they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace and formed a mob and, mob and started a riot. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them down after the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason had welcomed them. And they are defying Caesar's decrees. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Okay? So... Here they are, running them out of town. Okay, as soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. So it's so bad, and the persecution is so strong by the Jews, they have to run to Berea. Okay, they go into the Jewish synagogue. They began to, to preach. Uh, the people here are noble and examine the scriptures, and they're converting people. But look at verse 13. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Okay? So now we come over here, and he's writing to the church of the Thessalonians, and he knows uh, that these people, in fact, look what he says in verse 6 of chapter 1 of First Thessalonians, you became imitators of us in the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message. So it's written to people. The dating is about 58 A.D. And it's written to people that when Paul went in there and preached, the Jews did everything they could to try to stamp it out. They even followed him into Berea. And all of these people have been suffering and being persecuted by the Jews. But Paul has preached what Jesus has told them, that he's going to come in judgment on Israel at the end of that generation. So then, from this background of their suffering, 
he speaks of Jesus who rescues us in verse 1 and 10 again from the coming wrath. Okay? And they're to look at they're to wait for his son from heaven. So this son that's going to so-called second coming is going to rescue those people from a coming wrath and they're waiting on it. And now we get in come on down and he identifies that coming wrath and 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 that the judgment would come on them. Okay, now we uh, continue on down. Let's see, chapter 4. Uh, notice at the end of chapter 3, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. But what about the context? The context is the Lord Jesus coming with his holy ones in judgment on the Jews because they crucified him and they're, and they're persecuting and trying to stop the way. That's the context. There's nothing there in uh, any other context. Okay, now... Uh, we come into this fourth chapter and we come up to verse 13 and we have this whole statement about this judgment, the coming of the Lord, etc., etc., etc. But then let's continue into the fifth chapter. Now, brothers, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. All right, people that believe in the second coming today, the they say, hey, you don't know, it's going to be like a thief in the night. But look at the context. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. But, verse 4, you brothers are not in darkness, so that that day should surprise you like a thief. You are all sons of the light, sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness, so then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be alert and self-controlled. Sound like the parable of the virgins in Matthew 25. For those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate. And look at verse 9. God did not appoint us to suffer wrath. Well, we've all, Paul's used that now three times. And he's already identified that is this coming wrath on the Jews. But to receive salvation. Okay, how are they going to receive salvation? Well, he said, this day will come as a thief in the night. But he goes on and he says, it won't come on you as a thief in the night. You've been enlightened. But he wants them to be alert. And so if they're alert and they see all these signs taking place, then they're going to avoid that situation. They're not going to get caught in Jerusalem or fighting Rome or anything like that. And so God's wrath then will come on the Jews, but the same wrath that's on the Jews will be the salvation of the Christians because it will end their persecution by the Jews. So I'm saying that before a person even begins to look at verses 13 through 17, he has to remember that Paul did not write five chapters. He wrote one letter. And you can't go to anybody's letter and grab four or five little sentences out of its context. I mean, if you do that, I'm saying that take it out of its context and you've got the possibility of a plurality of interpretations. But I'm saying that whatever interpretation is given to these individual passages has to be in keeping with the total context. All right, now... Let's look at the, the, the 13 through 17 and put it in that context. Okay. Chapter. Look at verse uh, okay, 13 through 17. And he notice he says, We do not want you to be ignorant about these people to fall asleep or grieve like the rest of the men who have no hope. Okay, Jesus arose. We believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Okay? So in some sense, those who have fallen asleep are going to be brought. In some sense now. In, so, in some sense. According to the Lord's own word. In other words, he's saying that I'm telling you something that Jesus has already talked about. According to the Lord's own word. 
We tell you that we who are alive and are left to the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself, all right, now this is according to the Lord's own word. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a cloud, with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. Okay? Turn back to Matthew 24. Hold your place there. And flip back to Matthew 24. And look at our context. Matthew 24, verse 30. At that time, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and all the nations of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. He will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Okay, again, if all you had was that, you could interpret that in any number of ways. But then he says, now learn this lesson, etc., and he says, verse 33, even so when you, speaking directly to his apostles, and what is Paul telling you over here? He's saying, I'm giving you the words of the Lord. When you see all these things happen, know that it's near, right at the door. Notice these people were not, this wasn't going to be like a thief in the night. And see, we misuse that. They were to see those things happen and know it was at the door. This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened, all right? I'm saying this type of language of the Son of God coming, clouds of the sky, blowing a trumpet, gathering from the four winds and all, is the same language that he uses right here. And, and then the, the language before that, the sun will be darkened, the moon not give its light, the stars, you can turn back to the Old Testament in a number of places and see that kind of language used in judgment of the city itself. All right, and even people coming out of the graves and everything like that, you can see that used in a, in a figurative way in, in the Old Testament. But uh, remember in Revelation, when you get over, I believe it's in the sixth chapter, where you have those that have lost their life for Christ and they are waiting in anticipation when they would be vindicated. And so the, the implication is just like that... Uh, with uh, Abraham and Moses and Elijah, the rich man and Lazarus, that these people that had lost their life, they were aware that God's promise had to be fulfilled, and they were looking forward to it being fulfilled. Then how would you feel if you'd been out preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, and you'd been called a liar and everything under the sun and a blasphemer and been killed, and, and when you said that Jesus is going to come back and destroy the city and you're trying to warn these people, save yourself, you know, and, and accept him as the Messiah and all, and they have mocked you and made fun of you and beaten you and everything, well, then here you are in the Hadean realm. You can see how you would be looking with anticipation. Well, if you're down here, uh, you look also. And what he's saying is we're, we're not going to, in other words, the glory that would come in this event we're not going to proceed those people. We're all going to enjoy it. The people over here that have already died, the people that are going to die at that particular time, some would be killed during this, all this period of time, and whatever the future, that all were going to participate in this glory in, in, in some sense. And, and then we know that it's, it's so highly figurative because Jesus didn't literally ride a cloud and Jesus didn't literally come. Jesus came 
when his prophecies were fulfilled and Rome really wasn't it's just like and again the consistency there when you go to the Old Testament God will say I'm going to do this to Babylon I'm going to do this to Persia I'm going to do this to Rome or I'm going to do this to Egypt I'm going to do this to Israel when I get through with you such and such and the God will come riding on a cloud to do this but then when you read the historical setting how does God do all that he uses a nation is Nebuchadnezzar used in Jeremiah someplace about the calling the angel of God or God? Somehow how he's used as... Yeah, Nebuchadnezzar sees the uh, the angel in with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. No, I, I mean, in, I think it was in Jeremiah or somewhere. He talks about Nebuchadnezzar coming against Jerusalem. And he, he refers to... As a messenger as of God, messenger of God, or an instrument of God. Yeah. Well, they uh, Cyrus is referred to as God's anointed. Isaiah referred to him as. See, the word angelus simply means a messenger from God, and sometimes angel can refer to somebody here on this earth that is simply doing the will of God. They would be a messenger of God, uh, and you have to look at the context to determine whether you're talking about these spiritual beings. Oh. I think part of the problem, by the way, I mean, it was for me too for years, is that we are reading this from a Western scientific perspective as people who do not speak mostly in figurative language and idioms and things of that nature. But really, these people did. And, and they were just very, very comfortable. And this apocalyptic type of writing had been popular for a couple of hundred years for them. And what made it popular is that for hundreds of years now, the Jews had been a conquered people. And obviously, again, that's hard for us to understand because we've never known anything but freedom in this country. But when you are a conquered pe person and the king is like Saddam Hussein or Hitler, he can just take your life anytime you want to, you don't say just anything. And so what they, what they, were, what they had been doing now for several hundred years is that they would write these things but they would use very highly figurative language rather than come out and use a name. Okay, so we're going back to that passage. I'm, uh, I'm doing this for a reason. I'm not trying to be. No, I don't. I don't. He says, We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in some figurative way. God, when Jesus Those that have been killed. Right. But see, when he says God will bring with Jesus, but I'm saying Jesus himself was not literally coming. Right. It was a Roman army. So it's, it's like... But they would be vindicated too. They would be vindicated. In other words, when Jesus, when they led him up to crucify him, and, and he turned and, and said to them, don't weep for me, daughters of Jerusalem. Weep for Jerusalem. Weep for your city. And, and, and then he spoke the judgment and all on it. And then Paul speaks of God's wrath that's going to come on these people because of what they did. And so I'm saying that on the one hand where it says that, uh, that God would bring, Jesus would bring these with him. And they want to have this as a literal thing. But yet Jesus himself is being used in a figurative sense. That Jesus would come in glory when his words were fulfilled and Rome took. And it's the same thing with God. The day of the Lord in the Old Testament prepare to meet your God. That's what Amos would say. Prepare to meet your God. The day of the Lord will come. Well, what was, how did they meet God? When did the day of the Lord come? It would be when the events 
that God had said took place and another nation actually defeated them. And so those people that had already been beheaded, it was like uh, over here in, was that Revelation 6? I can't uh, remember exactly. I'm, were those that had already been beheaded. They're getting a kick out of Papa. That's my 100-year-old grandfather. They did a VCR on him. Okay. Yeah, it's in 6, uh, verse 9. Okay. He opened the fifth, and I saw in the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God. They called out, How long, sovereign God, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers were to be killed as they had been was completed. Okay? I'm saying that they were vindicated as much as Jesus himself. That right. Jesus... They, hoped, they put their trust in Jesus. And they had been executed. Right. And so Jesus was coming in judgment, you know, through on Jerusalem. But all of these people that had died with the, and, and because of their testimony they would be glorified with him and vindicated in everything that they said. Okay. Okay, and even even like, uh, could that mean like where, uh, where like in Hebrews chapter 11 it talks about all the people of faith, they died, but they, it hasn't been, you know, they didn't see the promise right. fulfilled. And so it would even go back and encompass Abraham, Isaac, mm -hmm. and Jacob, right. Moses, and all those in the Old Testament that they would be coming with Jesus. Yeah. And that all the prophecies in the Old Testament was going to be... All of them going to be fulfilled. At all that point. Right. And so then, then all those peoples putting their faith in, in, the, in the Messiah and in his victory, right. essentially, that they would be coming with him and they would be victorious yeah. also. And then this kingdom, right out of this, man, this kingdom's going to explode after this event and, and fill the entire... Earth. All right. And so that we... Are, in other words, we are not, they were concerned about the dead. And so we're not going to be glorified alone. Uh, you know, uh, we're not going to precede them in any way or anything like that. All of us together will be glorified. Right. And so when the event took place, whether you was alive or dead or in the process of being killed, it didn't matter. We were all glorified together in, okay. in Christ's fulfillment. And in verse 17, when it says, After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. He says, And then after that, when we die, we're going to go to be with them too. And then he says, And so we will be with the Lord forever. Right. And so he means that, that even we that are left, we're going, to, we're going to join in that too. Right, we're joining, so just we're like us now. Part of this, we're part of it too. We are experiencing the kingdom of God right now. We still glory in the fact that the light might now. We literally glow over the fulfillment of all those prophecies. If we were studying with a Jew right now, we couldn't whip this out quick enough because we want to persuade him of the Messiah, and we glory in that event and the fulfillment of it. But we're also looking forward. Like We know these people over here died, and, and they're with the Lord. But eventually we too will be caught up. And it'll be when, when we die in our spirit. See, before this thing with Christ, the Bible is, is unclear. In other words, the spirit went into the Hadean realm. But the reality of the sacrifice had not taken place. So there's still that separation. 
and, and until the, you have Jesus crucified, only then is the veil of the temple split. And, the, and the, remember, the veil symbolizes separation from God. And, and it, the Hebrew writer said that even the high priest, when he went, there was always this veil hanging down. Even though you're as godly as you know how to be, of course, you come up short, offering your sacrifices, that veil is symbolizing that there's a separation between you and God. All right, Jesus said that even the least in the kingdom would be greater than John, even though there never lived a man as good as John. Now, surely no, no better than John the Baptist. So there is a relationship over here that man could not have before because the sacrifice was a promise, but it was not a reality. And now, now God could give the remission of sins to David and all because God dwells in eternity. And so something that's going to happen in the future, God thinks of it as if it's already happened. And so from God's standpoint, it's a foregone conclusion. But from man's standpoint, he doesn't live in eternity. He's a time-bound creature. And so from man's standpoint, it doesn't become a reality until it actually happens. And so remember at the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah appeared and talked with Jesus concerning the giving up. Well, that was Moses and Elijah were legally still separated from God. I mean, their promise was there, but they were still separated. And then the Hebrew writer speaks that after that event, that sacrifice once for all, that the blood then flowed back and took care of all the sins before as well as forward. I think that's... Uh, uh, Hebrews 9, is that 9 and 15? Well, what you're saying, there was something that happened at the crucifixion, even in the spiritual world. Right. Now I'm that, saying that, that the spirits no, of those that had died. Nobody was ever united with God legally until the sacrifice of Christ. And it was always something they looked forward to, that they were still waiting. In it, and and I, they did not have the same. And that's why the Jesus, neither one of us are as wealthy as Abraham was. That. Uh, in some sense, people over here in the kingdom were going to have a, a greatness that John himself never experienced. But he, uh, but he experiences now. Right, right. And then, okay. Let's see. Uh, in uh, 9 and... Uh, for this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. So they were not set free from the sins that they committed until the sacrifice of Christ. That it was not a it was not an event that had taken place until until it. then they were set free. I'm saying all mankind was held in bondage to sin. And all mankind had nothing to look forward to in the way of life until after the sacrifice. And even to Moses and Elijah and Abraham who had died, they still had not been legally united with God. It would take that sacrifice. And that was symbolized when the veil of the temple was split. Well, the Bible picks in the Hadean realm. But there's a difference there. In other words, it's just real. You don't really have enough information to... Uh, all you know is, in the way of information, that you, you have this thing that all the way up until the time of Christ, nobody looked forward to dying. Moses sure didn't want to die. He wanted to go over into the Canaan land. And they kept saying they were gathered to be with their fathers. Okay? And then we can see their, their understanding of, you know, in the Hadean realm itself. But then all of a sudden we get into the New Covenant, 
And we've got a group of people that have no fear of death whatsoever. And, and then Paul makes this statement, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'd rather go ahead and be with the Lord. And, and you have the statement by Jesus, he that is least in that kingdom would be greater than John the Baptist. So there has been a change in relationship that, that gives a oneness and a righteousness. Now, we were not, God is holy. Remember when uh, God appeared to Isaiah, and it's recorded in Isaiah 6, and Isaiah didn't think he was fit to be, be a prophet. He said, I'm a man of unholy lips. And then he said, all, my, all our righteousness is as filthy rags before you. Isaiah didn't even feel fit to be in the presence of God. He wasn't fit. Remember with Moses, the veil, and, and all of this symbolizing that Moses, because of your sin, you're not even fit to see God. You're not fit to be in his presence. And so all of this was symbolized in every way. When the law was given, there was all that commotion that scared them half to death. But everything was done to symbolize to their mind that they were unholy and unrighteous and they were not fit to be united with a holy God. And, and the very nature of God is that, that we could not have fellowship. And then with the sacrifice, now everlasting righteousness is brought and we can be righteous, not because we're righteous, but because of the blood of Christ. And, and, that, and that his righteousness can be imparted to us. And only with that righteousness do we have eternal life and, and, and united. So I think the exact state of those people, I just believe it's very, that there's not enough information. You just, you know that they died in hope of the Messiah to come. And, and they were said to be gathered to their fathers. And you can see a consciousness that's expressed in Moses and Elijah and Abraham and, and, uh, and certain other statements there. Uh, Job's statement that uh, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and in the latter day he will stand on the earth, and I will see him, though not in my flesh. So in, in some sense, he knew that a Messiah was coming. Now, obviously, he didn't understand everything, but he, he died knowing that a Messiah was actually coming, and he believed that he would die but he would eventually, even though he wasn't in the flesh, but you see even there, Job's concept that the body is something he lives in, you, you, that he looks forward to seeing this Messiah coming, even though he will not be in his flesh. So it, it's really, uh, I don't think there's any way that we can relate to that, because it's like, you know, some of the other, trying to, uh, if you were colorblind, and somebody's trying to explain red to you. We have never been into the spiritual realm. And really, the only way God can communicate to us is through figurative language, because you're, you're talking about a realm that we have, we have nothing to go on. We have absolutely no experience that, and, and that we can deal with. And that's why that uh, no matter how strong you believe, and, and you can be absolutely positive concerning the resurrection and everything, when you get to the point of death, there's still going to be some discomfort there, because this is something you know. And, and so it's like a, a kid that on the one hand is looking forward to <clears throat> going to college, and on the other hand he's scared of leaving home. Uh, or, or, or somebody that's going away, you know, for the, to, into something new, a new job or whatever it is. On the one hand, you, you know, you're anxious. On the other hand, this is something you know and are comfortable with. And so I think you'll never get away from that element here. Yeah. But I believe, I believe you'll never get away from that element, that it's still... What you there your faith and your faith is strictly in God and what you're really saying is in whatever words you may be using in your own mind 
the same God that prepared this, and man, I really like this, it's pretty nice, has prepared something that he describes in terms of things that your eyes have not seen, your ears heard, in other words, beyond even what we can imagine, that, he, that we've got something better. And also, common sense would tell us that God is spirit and that he has chose the superior realm for himself. That this is, I mean, he says that, that Jesus, in order to become man, had to become lower than the angels. So what we ought to feel good about is that although I haven't been there yet, I know that it's better than what I've got now, even though I don't know. But there's no way you can deal with it from an understanding standpoint. But think of all the things you deal with here that you don't understand, such as that uh, TV where they're, you're seeing something happen in Russia right there on the TV, and that's being transmitted through the air, and that's pretty difficult to grab hold of. Okay, let me ask you one other question. Let me give you a two or one minute answer because I kept being here talking a long time. Taking all that into consideration, what was the importance of Jesus coming in judgment on Jerusalem in, in respect you know, to all that's said about it in the New Testament? Why was that such an important event? Part number one, it destroyed Judaism. Okay. See, Judaism cannot exist without Jerusalem and the temple. Three times a year, everybody has to come back to Jerusalem. The sacrifice can only be offered at the temple. Remember, God had condemned all the high places and all. The only place a Jew could offer a sacrifice is at the temple. The only person that they could offer that sacrifice is a Levite. The only person that can be a priest is not just a Levite, but one of the descendants of Aaron by way of Zadok. That's the only one that can be a priest. Uh, all the worship centered in that temple. Without the, without the temple, there is no Jewish worship. Okay? The Jerusalem is the holy city. The Israel is the land grant given to the Jews. Okay? You destroy the city. You destroy the temple. You give their country away. Judaism has ended. It's just, it's just simply ended. Uh, there is no worship according to the law of Moses and hasn't been for 2,000 years. There was, there was no law of Moses worship without the offering of the sacrifices. No. There's no priest. There's, uh, the Jews, where are the priests among the Jews? Where are the prophets? Where are the sacrifices? Where is their worship service? Uh, nothing. So it was a cleansing of the, of the uh, shell of Judaism that, that rejected Christ. Right. You, you think of Judaism maybe as a, as a uh, scaffold that is building, you know, the, the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Now that Christ has come, the scaffold has been torn down. And, and you see, Judaism was competing with Christianity as a people of God. The competition is over. I mean, unless, unless you... So I, that's Christ's victory. He's victorious over that, that he's been vindicated as the Messiah. Right. And he embraced him by the world. And all spiritual Israel accepted him. And he says, all Israel will be saved, it is. The only true Israel was spiritual Israel, those that had faith like Abraham. Jesus even said in his days, he said, if you were Abraham's children, you would have faith like Abraham. He says, you're not acting like Abraham. You're not walking with the kind of faith that Abraham says. And remember, he said, your father's the devil. And that's when they became so very Romans, strong. when it talks about all Israel will be saved, he's talking about spiritual Israel. Right. All Israel is, is Jew and Gentile, those of faith like Abraham, but all Israel. And see, the premillennialists, are still going back to flashlight. 
Israel. It's, it's absurd, you know, what we're doing. Because the true Israel always was spiritual Israel. The remnant, Isaiah calls them, that was the true people of God. I mean, among the Jews, remember Elijah got so disturbed that, that he went off to a cave by himself. He said, God, nobody ever cares about you. All the way through their history, not just at the time, what got Stephen stoned to death is he went back through their history and said, there's never been a time but that most of you were rebellion against God. All through their history, there was never but a percentage. In a way, we see that same thing in Christianity. There, there is what we call the churches, you know, and, and people call themselves, but you and I, those of us who really, I think, understand Christianity, we know that the true Christian is the spiritual person, the, the person who is, who has really repented of his sins, put his trust in Jesus, who wants to obey his commands to the best of his understanding, and who is striving to emulate him in his life. I mean, that's a true question. And then we, and then we got a lot of culture people in there. And it was the same among the Jews. That was always the true Jew. And then you got Paul saying, he is a Jew who is one inwardly. Uh, and then true circumcision is of the heart. You know, we might say the same thing too, that he, he is a Christian who is one inwardly. 